Well, good morning. Good morning, everyone. If you could head back to your seats, if you don't mind. Let me just add my welcome to all of you, whether you're here in person or uh, checking us out online. We're so glad you decided to join us this morning. If you happen to be new, uh, and maybe this is your first time or you haven't been around for a while, uh, my name's Don. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and we are in the middle of a series where we are teaching through the first three chapters of Genesis through the fall. And so today we have come to chapter 1, verses 26 through chapter 2, verse 3 is our text for today. And the title of the message today is simply called Created in the Image of God. Well, there was once a lady who walked into a hat store to buy a hat for a special night out on the town. And she wanted something original, so she chose this beautiful emerald-colored ribbon and asked the weavers to make her a hat immediately. And so within 15 minutes, he made the most beautiful hat she had ever seen. And so she asked, how much? And he replied, $500. And the lady shouted, $500 for a piece of ribbon? That's ridiculous. And so the man calmly unraveled the hat and responded, you can have the ribbon for $5. Just like that beautiful hat was made from a simple ribbon, human beings may be made from the same basic ingredients as the rest of the plant and animal life forms in this creation. The same chemicals, the same molecular compounds. But despite that similarity, humanity is distinctly different from all other forms of life, just like that unique original hat. The creator has designed something in creating mankind that is a unique work unlike anything else. And man is the crowning feature of God's creation. In the earlier parts of chapter one, we've seen the progressive unfolding of God's design in his creation. And through that progression, there's been a a rising level of complexity and significance. But on the sixth day, God brings forth the centerpiece of his creative work, and that centerpiece is mankind. So let's read Genesis 1, verses 26 through 30 together. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. In this passage, there are a number of things that tell us this is the moment of significance in God's creative work. I mean, this is the only place in the creation narrative where God pauses to reflect and consider what he is about to do. In verse 26, before God actually creates man, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth 
and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God pauses in this moment to consider and reflect on what he is about to do. And this is a a picture of the significance of this moment. This is the culmination of creation. And when we come to this point in the creation story, the narrative slows down. The number of words used to describe the six days far more than any other component of creation. There is significant additional detail given. It's kind of like if you're watching an action movie and and there's this particular scene where all the action and explosions are going on and then all of a sudden the movie just moves into slow motion so that you can kind of catch every little detail of what's happening in that scene. That's what's going on in this moment. God is slowing things down because this is important. And there is also a difference in how the creation of man is depicted compared to the creation of other life forms. There's no simple let the earth bring forth as with the fish and the birds and the animals. The language here is one of God more intimately involved in this aspect of his creative work. This is God's creative masterpiece. This is the purpose that everything else has been moving towards. All else that has been made in the work of creation has been to make a place and a home for his final work, humanity. But what is it that makes man unlike anything else that God has made? What is it that makes him so unique? Well, the answer is repeated over and over in verses 26 and 27. It's that mankind is made in the image of God. Verses 26 and 27, we see it again and again. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then in verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him four times. And those of you, couple verses, God reiterates man is made in his image And so in this text, Moses, as he writes this to the Israelites, wants his readers to see, and I think what God would want us to see as well, and this is kind of the big idea of this passage, our purpose as human beings is defined by our being created in the image of God. Our purpose as human beings is defined by our being created in the image of God of God. But what does it actually mean that we are created in the image of God? Well, there's been much theological debate on this point over the centuries and much debate today. But some of the things that seem to be a part of what it means are that we have a spiritual element or nature as part of our being that we can reason and have emotions, that we have moral sensitivity and a sense of right and wrong, that we can communicate and have relationships with God and other people, that there's an eternal aspect to our being, our souls, that we have authority over the creation, and the list goes really on and on. And while there is some measure of truth in all of these, I think in a very real sense, this approach to the issue, to some degree, really misses the point in these verses. See, there is no list that can exhaust the complexity of what it means to be made in the image of God. We could never do justice to God's wisdom or to his supreme work in the creation of man by thinking that we could capture all the details of what it means to be made in his image. And I don't think that's what Moses was intending when he wrote this. I don't think he was concerned with all the intricate details of what being made in the image of God entailed. Moses' intent was probably somewhat simpler, yet no less profound. 
The emphasis in this passage communicates two key things about what it means to be made in the image of God. I think Wayne Grudem sums these two things up in this statement from his Bible doctrine book. He says, the fact that man is in the image of God means that man is like God and represents God. And so it's these two aspects that we want to look at this morning. So before we dig into that, let's just take a moment and and ask God to, to be with us and help us today. Lord, as we come to this text, Lord, this text that is the the defining words of why we are here, Lord, of what our purpose is here, of what you have intended in creating people and human beings in each one of us. So, Lord, I, I just pray that you would grant grace to me to speak on these texts faithfully and and accurately according to your word. And I pray that your spirit would just fill this place this morning, Lord, that you might speak to each of our hearts as to the significance and the importance and really the the meaning of what it means to be made in your image. That we would not lose any of your intent and your purpose and what you want to communicate through these words in your scripture this morning. So, Lord, I ask you to do this for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing that we want to look at is that being created in the image of God means we are to reflect God. I mean, what is an image? It's a reflection of the original, right? I mean, think about it. We can just use the simple illustration of a mirror. I mean, when you get up in the morning, chances are most of you go into your bathroom, and at some point in that process, you look in the mirror, right? Well, what do you see when you look in the mirror? You see an image of yourself, a reflection of you. It may not be the most flattering at that point in the day, Um, but it is accurate nonetheless, right? Uh, but um, in, the, in that mirror, we see a reflection, an image of who we are. And so human beings are to be a reflection of God. And just as the image in the mirror is not you, man is not God. Man is not divine. We are not gods, as some people might claim. Yet we have been created to be a reflection of God and to display some of what he is like. I mean, that's what he says in verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. We are created to display the likeness of God. And to reflect not only his characteristics like reason, emotions, communication, and having a spiritual aspect to our being, but we are to mirror his holiness and character as well. We are to reflect the character and nature of God through how we live our human lives. You see, even though they may be currently wandering in the wilderness before going into the promised land, the Israelites Moses is writing to, they will need to see that there is a reason why God will give them the law when they get there. Because the law is an expression of the holiness and character of God that is to shape how they live. And as God's people, they have been created to reflect and display his likeness in their lives in this way. See, that's really the purpose of the law. The law was never given. If you think of the Ten Commandments as an expression of the law, the law was never given as a way for us to get right with God, to become acceptable with God, to somehow earn our way into God's acceptance through obeying the law. That was never the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was that God redeemed a people 
Israel by his grace and rescued them from bondage and saved them out of bondage and made them his people. And then he brings them into his promised land. And so he gives them the law so that they will know how to live to reflect his holiness and his righteousness and who he is. And that's why if you ever read through Leviticus, which can be a little challenging, I know, but um, it says over and over and over again, God says to Israel, you are to be holy because I am holy. You are to reflect me in how you live. Because you see, as we reflect God's character and what he's like, his glory is put on display through us. And the Bible clearly tells us that he created us for his own glory. That we might bring glory to him by being a reflection and an image of what he is like. God himself says it in Isaiah 43.7 where he, speaking through Isaiah, talking about how the day will come when he will gather all of his people that are scattered throughout the entire earth and he will gather them and it says, in Isaiah 43, 7, everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. See, our created purpose in life is to glorify him, to display his glory. That's why we were created. And we also see in this text that both Male and female are necessary to fully reflect God's likeness. Verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. See, gender and human sexuality, they're important components of how God designed human beings. And perhaps you were under the impression that the idea to create woman came after God made man. I mean, maybe you get that idea from Genesis 2.18 where it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. I mean, maybe you could read that and seem like it says, well, God kind of did the man thing. He made the man. And then he said, you know, this isn't quite right yet. There's something missing here. So let me see. Let me make a helper fit for him. I'll make a woman. And that way it'll kind of make it, make it all good. But our text today reveals to us that that's not the case at all. We see here that God's intent was always to create both male and female in verse 26, before God has created anybody, as he's reflecting on what he's about to do, he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them, male and female, have dominion. See, God's plan involved the making of man before woman, but it was always his intent to create both male and female. And the sequence of creation really had more to do with what God was communicating about male and female roles and the man's leadership role and responsibility. But God purposely designed humanity as both male and female from the very beginning. And so both gender and human sexuality were part of God's intentional creative design of human beings. Now, we're going to talk a lot more about gender and sexuality coming up in a couple weeks. We're actually going to do two messages, one on gender, one on sexuality, gender on October 8th, sexuality on October 15th, where we're going to dig more deeply into these and kind of look at, what, you know, not only what does the Bible say to us, but what is the culture telling us in these areas and how do we, how do we navigate through these things kind of in our lives as God's people. And so, so just a heads up, if you're a parent, you have small children and you would be uncomfortable with them in a, in a conversation or a message on a topic like that, just keep those dates in mind so you can decide how you want to handle that. October 8th will be gender. The 15th will be sexuality. <clears throat> and the other thing we want to do is in, in, when we do those messages, we're also going to do, do two 
grace at the table panel discussions around those topics. Because these, these are issues that people are wrestling with in, in our world today. I mean, parents are wrestling with these things related to their kids and how their kids are dealing with these issues. Young people have friends, and they're dealing with these kind of struggles themselves. And so we want to kind of, you know, at least have some discussion around just some of the nitty-gritty practical realities. How do, we, how do we navigate through these issues in our daily lives? And so as we move into that time, um, I mean, these are challenging things that people are, are dealing with in their lives in many cases. And if you would have questions uh, that you would like to submit to those panels, we'd be happy to try to address as many of those as we can. You can send those questions. You can text them to the number on the screen. And we'd be happy to try to consider those when we do those. But humanity designed as male and female, displays something about God. It reveals his image in ways that neither one can do by themselves. And the differences between male and female display different elements of God's image uniquely. And these differences are to be honored and valued because they each reflect something about God. They're not to be rejected or discarded in an effort to obliterate all differences between male and female as really seems so common in our culture today. But we should esteem and uphold those differences because God created them to reflect something about himself. And these verses tell us that both male and female are created in the image of God, and they may be designed to fulfill somewhat different roles, but because they are both created in God's image, they are absolutely equal in personhood, value, importance. And there is no difference in the dignity or worth between men and women. And because their dignity and value and personhood is, it is rooted in the reality of being made in the image of God. But man being created as male and female displays something else about God too. God's design of man as male and female designs into mankind a capacity for unique interpersonal relationship. I mean, the ultimate human expression of this capacity for deep personal relationships is the marriage relationship between man and woman. And there's something about this capacity for deep personal relationships that displays what God himself is like. Because God himself experiences this reality and his nature in the Trinity, where Father, Son, and Spirit exist in perfect full personal relationship with each other. And we get really a subtle indication of this reality in verse 26, where in verse 26 it says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So the question is, who's the us and our in this verse? And there are different opinions that people would have on this. Some, some people believe that God's speaking to the angels who are kind of observing what he's doing in creation. I just don't find that argument particularly persuasive. I'll give you two quick reasons why not. Number one, while man is described in at least four other places in the Bible as being created in the image of God, Nowhere do we see even the slightest hint of humanity being created in the image of angels. And then secondly, the angels may have been around, but they were not God's partners in creation. They were not participants in the work of creation such that the let us make in verse 26 would apply to them. 
And so I believe this is clearly a reference to the Trinity, and it is significant in this passage because God's design of man as male and female is reflecting something about the nature of God. It is reflecting the image of God regarding the relationships that are part of God's makeup in the Trinity, where God in some way that we can never fully comprehend is three different persons, yet one God. And so male and female give a more complete display of the image of God than either one can do alone. And so that brings us to the second point we want to consider in this text. And that is being made in the image of God means we are to represent God. Verse 28 says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God has created man to be in relationship with him as his image bearer. And being made in the image of God brings with it responsibility. We're not only responsible to reflect God's character and holiness accurately, but we are responsible to rule over God's created earth for him. I mean, this is a part of God's purpose in creating man that we see in verse 26. Again, we go back to that verse before God made man at all. He says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, they are to oversee his creation. God is the creator. All that he has made belongs to him. He's the owner of all things, including man. And all that was created was made by him and for him. And man is given the responsibility to rule over or manage God's creation. And so God charges them with this responsibility in verse 28. And humanity is accountable to God for this responsibility. It, it is not given as an optional assignment. And the picture the Bible often uses to describe this relationship is, is, this, is the Bible often talks about the idea of a steward. And steward isn't a word that we commonly use a lot in our day, but it was very common, the idea in biblical times. So let me give you a definition of a steward. A steward is someone entrusted with another's wealth or property and charged with the responsibility of managing it in the owner's best interests. Well, that's what we are. We are stewards. God is the one who owns everything. And we are his stewards. He has put us in charge of managing and overseeing his world, his creation, for his purposes and his interests. The psalmist picks up this idea of a steward in, in our stewardship in Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, where he says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. See, we are called to fulfill God's charge to oversee his creation for his purposes and his interests. And part of that charge is to fill the earth and subdue it. And here's the thing, that charge is just as relevant to us today as when it was first given to Adam and Eve. See, when you go to the workplace and do your job, you are fulfilling part of God's charge to oversee creation and subdue the earth. And there is meaning and value inherent in your work regardless of what it may consist of. Whether you do manual labor or administrative work or technical work or executive work, you are 
fulfilling God's call to subdue the earth as you do your best to give what God has given you to serve in doing your job. And that's why the Bible tells us when you do your work, you do it as if you're serving the Lord because you are. You're fulfilling his call to you to go out, manage his creation, fill the earth, subdue it, be a steward over what he's given you. And there's a million different ways that we participate in that. When a wife and mother give themselves to raise their children and care for the home, that is not a lesser role in any way. The stewardship and care of our families is part of fulfilling the charge God has given to oversee His creation and to fill the earth and subdue it. And so being made in the image of God involves a responsibility we have before God. Our responsibility to manage His creation and all that He has made, including our own lives, for His interests and His purpose. And we are to fulfill the charge that he has given us to fill the earth and subdue it in whatever ways may be appropriate to our role in the situation God has placed us in at this time in our life. And as we seek to faithfully live out that responsibility, whatever that looks like in us individually, it is God who provides for our needs and those of all his creation. See it in verses 29 and 30. It says, And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. I mean, here we see a picture of God's concern, his care for man and his provision for him. And not just for man, but for all his creation. I mean, there is no threat or competition for survival pictured here. The emphasis is on God's gracious, abundant care and provision. I mean, notice just, God, just God's abundant grace in the words that are used here. Let's look at those verses again, verse 29. Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food and it was so. I mean, just see the abundant, gracious provision of God's promise to his creation in these words. What a picture of God's sovereignty in providing for every single creature he has made in his creation design. I mean, what a picture of the generosity and graciousness of God, his loving kindness and care for man and all he's created. The psalmist again says it simply in Psalm 136, 25. He who gives food to all flesh for his steadfast love endures forever. So what do these verses in Genesis that describe man as being created in the image of God, what do they, what do they say to us today? I mean, what is the application of this truth to our lives? Well, there's a lot of application we could draw on what it means to how we live as God's people. How much are we living in a way that reflects God's character, his, his holiness, who he is? How much are we living in a way to, to, to the best of our ability, be a reflection of who God is in the lives, our daily lives? You know, the, the call where God says, you are to be holy because I am holy, it doesn't just stop in the Old Testament. It continues throughout the New. As God's people, we're called to be a reflection of his character, his holiness, to the very best of our ability. We are to reflect his image. 
And there's application in the stewardship reality. I mean, how we go about our jobs, do we give our very best in whatever it is we're trying to do? Are we seeking to be faithful and managing and caring for our families and our roles there? So there's a, we could talk a lot about application in those areas. But these verses also tell us that being made in the image of God establishes the dignity and value of a human being. Human beings have dignity and value simply because God has created them in his image. And that dignity and value doesn't change whether they are mentally disabled, elderly, extremely ill, or whether they are yet to be born. The image of God that marks every human being demands that we honor and value that life and treat it with the dignity that God's image would deserve. We have no right to consider as unimportant or disposable any human life, regardless of their limitations or helplessness. And the image of God stamped upon every human being demands that we treat life with dignity and value because God made them to reflect something about himself. And it's also interesting to note that when God created the other life forms in this account, he uses the phrase, after their kind, to indicate that there are clear distinctions between these different creatures. But there is no such language used to distinguish mankind from one another. Every human being is made in the image of God and equally worthy of the same dignity and respect. There's no distinction between races, ethnic groups, social status, education, or anything else that would be a basis to consider one person is better than another or in any way more or less worthy of dignity and honor and respect. It is the image of God that defines our value and dignity. And nothing else can add or detract from that. So in God's creation plan, there's no room for racist attitudes. No room for prejudice or looking down on or devaluing other human beings because of what they are, where they're from, what they have or don't have, how they may act or talk. We are all equal in that we are created in God's own image. And so I think as we reflect on this passage, it really provides us an opportunity to do, just to do a little bit of personal evaluation. Are there any attitudes or beliefs that we hold towards other people that would be dishonoring to their being made in the image of God? Have we judged other people in any way that would demean them or devalue their dignity and honor as being made in God's image? And if so, this is an opportunity by God's grace to turn from those kind of thoughts and beliefs, to bring our hearts and actions back in line with God's truth, where the dignity and value of every human being, every person, along with our very purpose as human beings, is defined by being created in the image of God. And so with God's crowning feature now finished in the creation of man, God's creative work is now complete. So let's look at the last few verses in this section, verses chapter 131 through 2-3. It says, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and rested on the, and, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. I mean, God's enthusiasm and pleasure in what he has made is elevated to a new level now that man has been added into the world. 
I mean, the creation is not just good as before. Now it is very good. And God doesn't just say that it's very good. He exclaims, behold, it's very good. It's like God saying, hey, everything, angels, heaven, look at this. Look at this. This, you've never seen anything like this. This is very good. And God is delighting in his creation in this verse. And with the addition of man made in the very image of God, the completed creation is now a fuller expression of the character and glory of the creator. And so with his plan for creation completed, God rests from his creating work. And while God is delighted in the goodness of the creation, he's delighted in humanity Really, in a very real sense, the ultimate purpose of creation is found in this seventh day. God's ultimate purpose in creating man in his image is so that they can participate and share in his rest in a living relationship with him. God's ultimate goal in creation was to make a people that would display his glory in a living relationship with him as their creator, where they would enter and enjoy his rest after he completed his work of creation. I mean, this is really the purpose of the Sabbath for Israel. The Sabbath was to be a constant reminder to Israel that they were to live in the rest of God. They were God's people who God had called them to himself, and they were to live in his rest as they go into this promised land. So the Sabbath was a reminder. Every week there was a day, a sign that you were to be focused on the fact that this is who you are. This is what your life is about. God's called you to be in his rest with him. But as we will see in the next few chapters in Genesis, sin would destroy man's ability to share in and enjoy God's rest. Sin in the fall would alienate man from God and break the living relationship between them. And so if God's creative purpose was to be fulfilled, God would have to provide another way for man to share in his rest. And the repeated failures of Israel to be faithful to God throughout their Old Testament history, it just testifies to this reality again and again and again. In our fallen humanity, we can never be what it requires to enter into God's rest. And so God had to provide a way for that to be possible. If, he, if his creative purpose in making man was to be fulfilled, God had to make a way to make that possible. And that's exactly what he did. He sent his very own son, part of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, to come into this world and become a human being. And when Jesus came into this world in human form, Jesus was the perfect display of the image of God in human form. And Jesus represented and reflected God perfectly throughout his life. He lived a life of perfect obedience, always representing, always reflecting God perfectly accurately and such that he earned the right to come into God's rest, to enter into that rest. But he didn't just come to do that for himself. He had nothing to prove. He came to do that for us. He came to do that so that he could take the righteousness that he earned, the privilege to enter into God's rest that he earned, and he could give that to us. And he gave himself to die 
to give his life on a cross, to take the sins that would forever exclude us from God's rest, to take those sins upon himself, pay the judgment that God required for them, so that by putting our faith and trust in him, we can be forgiven and we can receive his righteousness and we can have the privilege through him to come into the very rest of God. See, all that Jesus did, he did for us to make a way for us to share in God's original creative purpose that we as human beings would be able to share in a living relationship with him in his rest. And because of what he did, we can come back to God and share in his rest. I mean, Jesus himself said it. In one of his most well-known statements in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? I will give you rest. I will bring you back. Through me, you can come back into the rest of God. And so it's only through putting our faith and trust in Jesus, making him our hope, that we can enter into God's rest. He is the door to entering into God's rest. He is the only way that God has provided for us to be able to do that. In Hebrews 3 and 4, the writer really fleshes this idea of God's rest down. And he says in Hebrews 4, 1 through 3, he says this. He says, therefore... While the promise of entering his rest still stands. In other words, it's still available. The promise that God made through Jesus that we can enter his rest. It still stands. We can still come today and enter his rest. He says, let us fear. Lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. See, it's possible that we, we, we cannot reach. We cannot come into this rest. He says, for good news came to us. The good news that came to us, he's talking about, is what God has told us about Jesus, about who he was, what he came to do, why he came, that he came to make a way to pay for our sins, to bring us into God's rest. That's the good news that came to us. He said, good news came to us just as to them, talking about Israel. He's comparing it to Israel, where God told Israel, look, I've given you this land. Go into it. You have, I, will, you will enter, I will give you rest there. But Israel didn't believe him. And they refused to go in. And so they wound up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years and none of those people would be able to enter God's rest in the promised land. He says, but the message they heard didn't benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They didn't believe what God said to them. And in the same way as we hear about Jesus and who he was and what he did, if we don't believe what God says, then we will not enter into God's rest. Because he says at the end there, for we who have believed enter that rest. And so if by chance you're here today or you're listening online and and you've never placed your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've never turned from whatever else you think might be good enough to get you right with God, if you even care, have cared about that, if you don't see Jesus as your only hope to be a part of God's eternal plan and rest, I would just appeal to you, the promise still stands. You can come, you can enter in through Jesus by putting your trust and faith in him. If I could have the worship team come. For those of us who have believed and placed our faith and trust in Jesus as our Savior, I mean, he has given us the amazing privilege of entering into God's rest in a living relationship with him as his children. And while the fullness of that rest is still yet to come, but it surely one day will, Jesus has done everything needed to qualify us 
and keep us secure in that rest for all eternity. He did all the work that will ever be required to accomplish that for us. In Hebrews 4.10, the writer says this. He says, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. See, for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus, you don't have to earn it. You don't have to perform to keep it. God has done everything necessary to qualify you to share in his rest. And he will forever keep you secure in that through Jesus. And so as we close our time together, I know of no better way to reflect and thank God for this incredible privilege of sharing in his rest that he has given us through the saving work of Jesus than by partaking of communion together as his people and remembering the Lord's sacrifice for us that makes this possible in our lives. And so here at Grace Community, if you have your elements, we practice what's called open communion. That simply means that if you've placed your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are welcome to participate with us. You don't have to be a member here at Grace. But before we take the elements, let's, let's just take a moment and maybe reflect and just think about that our privilege to come into God's rest, his eternal rest, that Jesus purchased that for us and the cost that he paid was incredibly high. I mean, as he came into this world and he went through this world in human form, wrestling with temptation as we are, it says, yet never sinning. As he walked through that, focused on his obedience, he did that because he was looking at you and me. He had his eyes fixed on us. He said, no, I've got to do this. And the suffering, the torture, the rejection, the injustice, the horrors of crucifixion which we cannot begin to imagine, and perhaps worst of all, the bearing of God's judgment and wrath for millions and millions of sins. I mean, that's the cost that he paid that we might be able to come into and share in God's rest. It didn't come cheap. And so let's just take a moment and reflect as we remember his sacrifice, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us through this sacrament of communion. Let's take a moment and just reflect on the cost that it took and the love that he demonstrated in doing that, that we could be here today and we could have the privilege of sharing in his rest.